0: This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hart, and I'm here with Adam Jobshow. Hello. We went a bit farther afield for today's guest, as she represents our first who isn't currently working in New Hampshire. However, Felice Bellman, the current deputy metro editor for The New York Times, has deep roots in the granite state. Before the Times, she was deputy news editor at the Boston Globe, and prior to that, she worked for the Concord Monitor. Thank you for joining us today, Felice. Oh, thanks. It's my pleasure.
1: Felice, could you give us a sense of what drew you to journalism and how you got started in your career?
2: Oh, sure. I mean, I think I sort of was interested since I was a a kid. I did the high school paper. And in college, I had every intention of being a very good student, but I got involved with the student newspaper. And I still have books that I never cracked open (laughs) from college because I got so sucked into the school paper. So it seemed like a natural. And then I had a summer job midway through college at the Providence Journal when the journal was still an enormous really fine newspaper and they had something like 18 or 20 summer interns and they had bureaus all over Rhode Island and up into Massachusetts. And I just loved it so much. I covered the smallest news. And to my thinking, it was the biggest news in the world. (laughs) It was just, it was just so much fun, you know, like the Seacog zoning board at night. And it was really a terrific way to just learn how hard this work is, what goes into it, and also how much fun it is. Um, So I thought I would try to get a job back in Providence after I graduated. And they, at that time, weren't taking people as young and green as I was then. And they suggested Concord as a good place for reporters just starting out. And it really was. And I I thought, oh, well, this will be a six-month job. And I ended up in Concord for more or less 25 years. (laughs) Um, So I really just fell in love with it.
1: You made your career at Legacy Newspapers. During an era when there's been a proliferation of alternative uh, news outlets, do you think that publications such as The Monitor, The Globe, The Times, providing something that newer startups just can't?
2: Well, it's interesting. The word legacy is interesting, partly because it is at least partially code for we still have the albatross of the cost of printing. The cost of maintaining presses, the cost of delivering newspapers, all of that is really expensive. Startups are usually just online, um, or many of them are, and so they don't have all that overhead. So in a way, they're fortunate. I think, you know, when I started, legacy organizations are all that there were. It's sort of what I know. I think being at the New York Times is a luxury for staffers, but I do think there are startups and other sorts of new New operations doing really creative and really important journalism all over the place, including in New Hampshire and and more broadly in New England.
1: Do you see something that you can do at the Times that you just wouldn't be able to do at a non-newspaper outlet?
2: Well, I do think that the New York Times is almost unique in this country for the size of the platform that it has. There's a few other publications with, with such a big reach. And so I'm constantly mindful of how many people we are actually talking to and it sort of ratchets up the responsibility of choosing wisely what stories we, we write, and we could write about everything or anything. And so why are we choosing this story today? Why is this the most important or interesting thing we're doing? Also, working for such an enormous publication comes with resources that just don't exist at smaller operations. And so, for instance, if there's a school shooting in Nashville or a deadly tornado in Mississippi, we can send scads of journalists there, and we can... Not just reporters but also videographers and still photographers and we can rotate people in and out and still have others available to do other stuff it's just it's just i mean i felt that going from concord to boston and then from boston to new york it's just at a, at a whole different level and so you're you know it's just a, a luxury that isn't isn't available to journalists too many other places
1: well with that, that that reach that broad reach that you referred to i imagine that goes in both directions meaning that not only do you, you have so many readers but so many people are also trying to send in stuff tips and information or things that they think that you ought to be reporting on and that was one of the questions I wanted to, we wanted to ask is how does an organization like the new york times or the boston globe sift through all of that incoming information to decide what is worth assigning to a reporter
2: you know, that's a really good question. And I feel like it's a very subjective question, a very subjective sort of decision making that goes on. It's not really a science, but it is sort of the biggest difference between covering intensely local news for an exclusively local audience, which is what it seemed like when I was at the Concord Monitor. We were right. We know exactly who we were writing for. It was Concord and 40 something odd towns around the capital, And that was sort of it. In a good way. And so it was, it was, it was possible to understand your audience and what they were interested in. And the answer was almost anything local, you know, almost anything we would write about the city of Concord or the towns outside of Concord or state government, particularly, or the presidential primary. These were all topics, almost any, nothing could be too small because everything was of interest. You were writing about the place where people lived and worked and went to school. I spent my first two years, I'm now covering a New York city news at the New York Times, but my first couple of years here, it was the National Desk. And you're right, we get pummeled with tips and calls and suggestions. Some, some people are promoting ideas that they would like us to investigate. They see scandal or wrongdoing or something somewhere. But there's also just PR people all the time and then just regular people. And um, I think a lot of the calculus is you know something interesting is going on in laconia it's of intense interest to laconia if you were a reader in san diego would you read this story is there something about what's happening in laconia that is so inherently interesting it doesn't matter that it's laconia or is it an example of something going on all over the country so for instance there was a stretch not that long ago when and maybe still where local school board meetings had become the forum for everybody's anger people were coming people were sort of participating more than ever. This was like a during COVID and just post-COVID, people learned to participate because so many of the meetings were now accessible on Zoom. So they didn't actually have to go to the school board meeting in person. But then people started coming in person. And I think the meetings in lots of places all over the country became really rancorous. It started out being about people questioning COVID restrictions for being too onerous or not rigid enough. And then it sort of morphed into a different kind of, parent activism on all sorts of issues, you know, about what goes on in classrooms. That's a story you could tell from many, many parts of this country. Um, There are probably towns in New Hampshire where you could center a story like that and then broaden it out and tell the whole thing. So that's, you know, that's a variety of story the New York Times will do where it's, there's something going on nationally and you choose a place in the country that is a smart place to tell that story from. But it's really, you know, it's a, you win some, you lose some. There are stories that we think are going to do really well with readers and they sort of bomb. You know, we're able to track how much readership stories get online, if not in print. Some, And sometimes we have a good idea for why things do well. And sometimes it's a little bit mysterious.
1: There must be a tension in that though. I, I imagine that there must be stories that you must feel that if the Times doesn't publish it, no one will. So therefore, the sort of a, um, from a philosophical perspective, you might make the argument that you should do that story regardless. But then there's also the more practical side that would say, we need to be publishing stories that, have, that resonate with readers. How, is that a tension that you feel in, in, in that making that decision?
2: Yeah, that definitely is. And I think there are some stories that we feel a sense of mission and obligation on, regardless of whether we think it's going to draw jillions of readers. One example of this is there's a reporter on the Metro staff at the Times who has done the most excellent reporting on abuses within the jail complex at Rikers Island. She's terrifically well-sourced. She's got sources among incarcerated people, among the guards, among the union, among the bureaucracy. She's written an awful lot about it. Some of those stories are sensational and do very well with readers, but not all of them. And I think we do them because it's it's a real public interest or concern about you know how how we treat the people we lock up behind bars and so we're going to do those stories regardless of whether the whole country is going to read them or not it feels like just a real this is this is part of our our mission there's other sorts of stories like that too where the audience may be we know going in it's going to be small but it feels important for that small audience and i think it's just a balance and you know i feel like almost any newsroom is going to be weighing decision making like that at some level what makes it a little bit easier here is that we've got really generous staffing and so we can do more than one or two or three things all at once and i think that's that's not true of smaller places
1: I thought your decision to pull Poets poets Laureate during the uh, pandemic was particularly inspired. Could you tell us how that particular story came ab- about? And yeah, it also, if there's a particular verse that comes to mind. <laughs>
2: um, this was such a fun project. And it it was a terrific, very creative idea by the national editor. And it was... It was either the first or second year of COVID. It was definitely before the vaccines were available. So it was still a very dark time in the country. And it was coming up on Thanksgiving. And this editor, who was my boss at the time, is a real poetry fan and knows a lot about poetry. And his, his idea was, what if we got in contact with every state poet laureate? There, Almost every state has its own poet laureate in addition to the national poet laureate. New Hampshire has one, most, most states do. And his thought was, what if we connected with all of them and asked them to write poems about gratitude as it was coming up on Thanksgiving? What, what do people still have to be thankful for even in the midst of a very dark and kind of scary time? And I was initially so skeptical. I mean, what we were asking poets to do was write on a journalistic deadline, like you've got a week to come up with a poem (laughs) and write to a word limit, a journalistic word limit, all these poems, we needed them to be short if we were going to get 40 or 50 of them. And I just worried that the poets would sort of Look down their noses at this sort of pedestrian thing. They loved it. So they really got into it. I don't know if they were just bored at home because of COVID or they liked the idea of being in the New York Times. But these poets, they almost everybody agreed to participate and they wrote specifically about their state, you know, what we in Rhode Island have to be thankful for, what we in Kansas have to be thankful for. And we learned a lot about poet laureates. Like in some states, they're a really big deal. Like very famous poets get to be the poet laureate. In some states, it's a lifetime appointment. In some states, they come and go every couple of years. Some of them are, do really fine poetry. Some of them is, is sort of more amateurish. It was all very interesting, and some of the poetry was really wonderful. And then we were able to hire a designer to do beautiful illustrations to go with some of them. I think readers really appreciated it. It was sort of just like a, a nice moment amid such relentlessly bad news at the, at the time. And I also just really appreciated that the New York Times saw itself as a place that could be the host to 50 poems. <laughs> you know, it's just it's, an, it's not usually what we're what we're offering our readers, but for the holiday, it's, it seemed nice. Um, I really liked it, and it, it seemed like it got it got um, a lot of uh, appreciation from readers. So it was great.
1: Do you think there's anything to take away from that experience? I guess what I'm asking is, do you see any overlap between poetry and journalism, or to ask it a different way, do you think that journalists could learn something from poets?
2: I do. And in fact, when I was in Concord, when I first started there as a reporter, the editor at the time was Mike Pride, who was the longtime editor. And he's a big poetry lover. And he actually had personal relationships with a lot of the famous poets who made New Hampshire home in the 80s and 90s and beyond. Some of them have have died since, but some of them are still around. And he would occasionally do like a brown bag lunch for for the newsroom staff, where he would have a poet come and read their work and talk to us about how they did their work. I remember Donald Hall talking about how... He never finished revising poems, even when they were already published. And so he had brought a published, one of his published collections of poetry, and he was reading to us, reciting it, and he had a pencil in his hand and he paused in the middle of it and he crossed something out and he fixed, fixed with it. He, it still wasn't quite perfect, even though like it had already sold thousands of copies. And I think Mike's idea was to hear how professional writers in a much different venue approached their art and... I think his aim was also to make us think hard about language and to write elegantly and to think about the words that we choose and the cliches that we fall into, you know, the sort of hackneyed traps, um, particularly when you're writing on deadline. And I think his goal was to make us think just more sharply about the words on the page. And it really stayed with me. And I think if nothing else, it was inspiration. And it taught all of us a love for the New Hampshire poets, at least. So I I definitely think, you know, you you know lovely newspaper writing when you see it because it's not so common, right? But every now and then you'll read something and you think, oh my gosh, I wish I could write like that. And that's what I remember out of these poetry sessions at the Monitor.
0: I'm curious what it was like to go from a small market state like New Hampshire to a world-renowned publication. Did you find any of your lessons learned here were useful on the grander stage where you now stand?
2: I think so I'm trying to think about what i what I could say specifically about that. I mean it's the it's the same sort of work you know you get to make mistakes on a small stage. it's harder on a big stage and so I think it's better to learn at a small venue and not have the whole world <laughs> coming at you. Uh, you know it's funny there are so many well there's you know places like. Places that, like the Monitor and the Keene Sentinel and the Portsmouth Herald, the way they existed 30, 35 years ago, is not really the way they are now. There used to be places with sort of sizable staffs of journalists. I remember at the Monitor, we had at one point 16 or 17 reporters and a Franklin Bureau and a Laconia Bureau, but they were also places where you could learn, where there was really good editing and you could you could be 22 years old and have an opportunity to cover politics and education and crime and fires and town meetings and and get like a really well-rounded kind of education in the basics and I think that's harder harder now to find places like that. And so as a result there are young people who come to larger publications in different ways, but without all of that sort of basic training, and so the the world is the world is really different. Those smaller venues are different even than they than they used to be, even the ones that still exist. I do think um, one great thing about New Ham- covering New Hampshire and I covered politics. At the State House before I became an editor. It's so close up, you know, like there aren't these layers of PR people, deputy PR people between you and the people you're covering. There's much less of that in New Hampshire than than there are in, in bigger venues. And so it was not easy, but not too hard to get to buttonhole the governor or have a sit down with the actual commissioners making the actual policy or carrying out the actual policy of the legislature. You could talk to the Speaker of the House. You could talk to the head of the Ways and Means Committee without having to set up an appointment 12 weeks in advance or go through PR people or just get canned emailed statements. And so it's sort of, it's great to then launch yourself out into the world with those sorts of expectations and not, and not feel like you have to just settle for you know, written nonsense from some staffer, but really pushed to to talk to the people you want to talk to. I, I, you know, seeing how the world works now, I feel so grateful to have had that sort of experience first.
1: We really are spoiled in New Hampshire. One of my favorite political journalism stories is that a reporter that was embedded with the Scott Brown campaign was following him into a diner to make like a campaign stop, and then they had to turn around because they realized that Hillary Clinton was already there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite journalism stories about the primary was from the 2000 campaign. That was the one that had John McCain in it. But there were so many candidates that year, and the traditional thing at the Concord Monitor back then was that you would assign one reporter to each candidate. And so everybody had their own personal candidate to cover. And they were usually usually worked out numerically. And McCain, we didn't quite appreciate what a big deal he was going to be. And so we had a very green reporter and we assigned her to cover McCain, saving the bigger name candidates like George Bush and I think Gore was in the race that year. And I'm trying to remember who the... We thought Elizabeth Dole was going to run. So we were, we were saving the bigger name candidates for the... More, more veteran reporters. But anyway, all of a sudden, McCain really took off and caught fire in a way that nobody was anticipating. And I, I do remember having a conversation among the editors, like, is this reporter that we put on McCain actually going to be able to do it? Or is she too inexperienced? And do we need to yank her off, even though we had promised her this opportunity? But the most amazing thing happened, which is that she just rose to the occasion. She willed herself into being a really fine political reporter. She stayed on it and she had like the best experience of her young career back then and she's now a courts reporter for the Washington Post, but it was just so great. Like, you know, you 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 can learn quickly if you have to. And New Hampshire, particularly the primary, at least the way it has been up until recently, who knows what's going to happen next. It really really provided an excellent opportunity for people who were interested in covering politics.
0: I'm wondering if you have gained any insights from your time at The Globe and now The Times about how news organizations in smaller markets could do better. Do you have any advice for us?
2: Oh, well, that's very interesting. You know, the thing that it's it's partly about being in a larger market, but it's partly just how the technology has changed recently. The most amazing thing to me is how we have technology that allows us to learn in real time which stories readers are most interested in and which ones they're not interested in. And I think when that first was introduced into newsrooms, reporters were nervous that it was going to be used sort of punitively. Like you wrote this story and it totally bombed with readers and you get a demerit. But instead it's, it's actually been much more of a a learning tool. Like we've got a reporter very interested in X, but every time he writes about it, readers don't seem to glom onto those stories. So what can we do? Do we, do we not write about that topic or do we find a different way in? And I, I think that learning, learning to give readers what they want rather than exclusively what they think we think they need. <laughs> um, I think there needs to be a bit of a, a balance about that. when I was at the globe, the editor was Brian McGrory he just he just left but he was there the whole time I was there and I remember he had this phrase that he used all the time. he said we we are not aiming to be the paper of record we are aiming to be the paper of interest, which is to say we're not going to cover every committee vote, we're not going to cover every city council meeting. we're not going to, do all of the dutiful stuff we used to do when we had a much bigger staff, but we are going to be relentlessly interesting. And I think it is a challenge. It was a challenge to his staff, but it's also freeing. You know, if you didn't have an obligation to do X, and I feel like every newsroom feels obligated to do something, you know, whether it's the, you know, it's every single game of the local you know, high school baseball team or every single meeting of the zoning board or every, you know, we're going to be, if, if you didn't have to do that, what would you do that would be better with your time? You know, is there some more interesting story? Is there a story you could spend two days on rather than one day or a week rather than three days if you didn't feel so obligated to do X? And then what's the, what's the cost benefit analysis? If you skip doing the thing that you have always done, what, what does it cost you? And so I, I do think we get into these rigid understandings of what our job is. And, and this notion of being relentlessly interesting, not just dutiful, has really stayed with me as I've tried to think about, you know, you could do anything with your day or your week. What, what's the best and most interesting thing you could do?
1: I have sort of a technical follow-up question. I've, I tend to read the New York Times website, and I check it several times throughout the day. And I sometimes notice that the same story will be up there, but with a different headline. And I wonder if the headlines get rewritten as a result of that real-time feedback.
2: Definitely does. I Sometimes we'll put a story on the website and it doesn't do as well as we thought. Readers aren't sort of flocking to it. And one thing we can do to try to boost its fortunes is to play with the headline. You know, maybe, maybe we emphasize the wrong thing, or maybe there's a more engaging way to get into it. There's a, there's a guy here who's such an excellent headline writer and he often will Notice that your story isn't doing as well as it could, and he'll suggest a test. And I don't know if everybody has this technology, but the Times is able to put two different headlines on a story so that half of the readers get one, half get another. And then we see which stories people actually read, which version of it they actually read. And an hour later, we'll say, oh, this is the better headline and go with that one.
1: Oh, my gosh, that is. So Is it? um, are the different groups split up geographically or is it completely random? Like one person logs in from Cincinnati and they get headline A as the next person logs in from Cincinnati and they get headline B?
2: I think that's right. Yeah. It it really has nothing to do with you. Just the fact that you happen to call up the story.
1: That would be endlessly fascinating for Mm me. I would probably just spend all day rewriting. Yeah,
2: you can. And then off maybe monthly or so, the people who are really sharp about these things will put out a memo to the staff that's sort of what we learned. Like, here's what we've this this sort of headline does well, this sort of headline doesn't. Here's here's why we think these tanked, but these other ones worked well. So it's not a science, but we can learn from it.
1: Is there a takeaway that you could share?
2: Yeah, people like headlines with numbers in it. So if you say you know, the subways are much less crowded than they used to be, but better to say there's 40% fewer people on the sub, you know, like some some figure like that. It's one, I'm trying to think what others. Um, there are some that we do and then they get overused and so then they don't work so well anymore. You know, headlines that start with how, you know, how the city council managed to spend, you know, to waste all your money or something like that. They they only work if they if the story really delivers on what the headline says. And so sometimes those... How, you know, are we really going to tell people how or just the fact that it happened? So that's something to think about.
1: All right. Well, we usually like to end by offering our guests a chance to provide a preview of something they're working on. Is there anything on your desk right now that you'd like to you'd like to tease?
2: Well, this is sort of interesting. We have a story coming tomorrow about. The state of Vermont has that medical aid in dying law, which it's one of a handful of states. Essentially, if you are close to the end of your life, you have a terminal illness. The state of Vermont allows you to request a fatal dose of medication. So you sort of take your death into your own hands. It's sometimes called assisted suicide, but I think the proponents don't like that kind of language. Anyway, there's a woman in Connecticut who just won the right to have access to the Vermont law, even though she lives in Connecticut. And so it's sort of expanding the reach of that law in a very interesting way. So we'll have a story about that, I think, tomorrow morning.
1: All right. Well, we will look out for that. And in the meantime, thank you so much for your time today, Felice.
2: Terrific. This was really fun. Thanks so much.
0: The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlon Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.